1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, and I'm your host, and I'm coming to you from one of those other undisclosed locations, which is live at the comedy cellar where we sometimes do our episodes here in beautiful greenwich village a lovely tenement building that uh, was built 150 years ago and and maybe around by the time the end of this podcast is over uh, and, uh, we have got, uh, two, uh, great guests today to talk about what's going on in the world. Joining me here in studio is Ryan Goodman of Just Security and a professor at NYU Law School. Hi, Ryan.
0: Hi.
1: And, uh, uh, on the line, we have an old friend, uh, Max Boot, who we have actually spent some time with, uh, at the Comedy Cellar during elections passed um one of them turned out not so well one of them was a little bit better hi max
2: good to good to be on david i guess you can say my batting average in elections is 500 so pretty yeah,
1: good right yeah we, well we're going to try to get it to 750 in the next 20 months okay. or so um and of course max is from the council on foreign relations and he writes for the washington post we've had a lot to go on this week that has uh uh, falls into the area that both of these guys have been covering. I, by the way, encourage you all to go to JustSecurity.org uh, and see the great work they're doing there on a regular basis, trying to make sense not just of uh, what's going on with Trump and Washington, but the intersection of security and legal issues um, everywhere. Um, I I kind of hardly don't know where to start here, um, Ryan. We had this week the Attorney General of the United States. Um, found in contempt of Congress, or at least the, the committee voted him in contempt. We will uh, soon see uh, the Congress vote him into contempt. As Nancy Pelosi said this morning, he may not be alone uh, because uh, the Trump administration has apparently taken the position, uh, despite its protestations of transparency, that it is going to provide no information to anyone on anything. Uh, and I noticed a tweet from you talking about this using the words of Jerry Nadler as "total stonewalling." Or, as we say, in the valley, they're totally stonewalling. <laughs> um, uh, where 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 can this possibly lead? You know, is it going to just be a congressional temper tantrum in which there's a lot of contempt citations? They hand them over to the Justice Department. The Justice Department says, "Fuck that. If we're not doing anything with it, or can it actually have some teeth?
0: It's a great question. Um, I think we are. So you know, it's the same moment that Jerry Nadler also said we already are in a constitutional crisis, right. and then followed up by um,
1: Speaker Pelosi saying the same. So I do. I do want you to know that your old law school buddy Rosa Brooks of our basic you know core deep state uh, team. Every week I say, "Are we in a constitutional crisis?" Right. And she says, "No." She says, mm-hmm. "This is constitutional rot." Right. It's a slow <laughs> degradation of the Constitution.
0: Right. That's right. So in some sense, when uh, Nadler said we're in one, um, it's almost like everybody has to turn around and say, you know, has the water boiled so much that we actually forgot that we've lost one of our limbs or something <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um and And uh, I definitely think that after this week, we are heading more directly into one so that we're on the track and it's reversible. But, uh, that's the direction we're heading in. Uh, the the fact that the Attorney General of the United States is going to be held in contempt of Congress by uh, the full Congress in all likelihood is going to be the first uh, significant indication of that. So I think that's one thing uh, that we all kind of can see in the short-term horizon. And the blanket stonewalling by the White House is huge. Um, the sense that they're just not responding to any of these uh, requests by Congress. I think that's a big, big deal.
1: Well, they've gone from sort of blanket stonewalling to absurd, impossible stonewall. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to declare, they 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 asserted that they were going to make everything having to do with the Mueller report subject to executive privilege, even though it's been published. Right. You know right, what I mean? Right. right. It's <laughs> like, how, how do you do that? You know, ever, America, you know, we're going to hypnotize you, so you forget it.
0: Yeah. I, from a technical legal perspective, I could find a way to charitably justify or that what they've said, like within certain limits specific to the Mueller report. But then you have to put it in the broader context. And the broader context is the president has said that he will respond to no subpoenas from the democratically led House because it comes from the other party. So that's the broader context, and it's manifest itself across the board um so I think that's why we have to read what's happening in the Mueller situation in that way. If you only look at it in terms
1: of the Mueller situation, then it's more limited, but it's not limited at all well and and you know one of the things that strikes is is that strikes one is um, as Nadler said, nobody in any committee has gotten anything that they've asked for, whether it's Elijah cummings or um, of course, whether it's a Ways and Means Committee seeking the taxes, and uh, of of course, Mnuchin is legally obligated, you know, and by a law that says he shall provide, right? And he's not providing. That's right. Um, so you know, Max, to me, where we are is, you know, it's it's you know, essentially, it's Trump versus the Constitution of the United States. What I find stunning um, is that there has been. Such discipline within the Republican Party to assume the role of adversaries of the Constitution of the United States. And you had a great column uh, in The Washington Post on today, the day we're taping this, talking about the hypocrisy of the Republican Party because all of them – and many people saw a tape of Marco Rubio talking about this in 2012 mm. with regard to Eric Holder – have in the past, or many of them, taken you know very strong positions when a Democrat's at the White House – about the importance of congressional oversight uh, and the Constitution. And now they're just, well, you know, it's a different party. It's a different day.
2: Well, that's right, uh, David. I mean, the hypocrisy, I think, is really off the charts. I mean, some people can try to claim, oh, you know, Republicans really believe in executive power. And so that's what this is all about. And that's true in, in a partial sense. Because, yes, they do believe in executive power, but only when the executive is Republican. When the president is a Democrat, then they suddenly believe in the need for congressional oversight. And so my column cited those remarks from Marco Rubio in in 2012 excoriating uh, Attorney General Eric Holder for not complying with congressional subpoenas. I also cited an example from the Clinton impeachment of of then-Congressman Lindsey Graham uh, laying out one of the grounds for impeaching uh, Bill Clinton as a failure to comply with with congressional subpoenas, just as Richard Nixon had done. So these Republicans are just incredibly slippery and opportunistic, and their only real principle seems to be to preserve Republican power uh, in whatever form it takes. And when Republicans are in power on the Hill, but not uh, in the White House, then they will champion congressional oversight. And when it's the reverse situation with Republicans in power in the White House, but not in the House, then they will champion uh, the White House. And in this case, championing on the rule of law that we have seen uh, since the Nixon presidency, although uh, Trump may b- might now be surpassing Nixon. I mean, given the, the, the illegality revealed in, in the Mueller report with you know more than Uh, 800 former federal prosecutors saying that if Trump were not president, he would have been indicted by now. And of course, since that report has come out, Trump is, is, is guilty of more high crimes and misdemeanors with his failure to comply with congressional subpoenas in his attempts to stonewall Congress, which, as Lindsey Graham pointed out, was one of the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. But Republicans don't really seem to care. They're I mean, the, instead of principles, they have public opinion polls and they see that the polls show about 90 percent of Republicans back Trump. So they're going to back Trump no matter how much uh, he attacks the rule of law. And so it's it's pretty depressing, you know, for a former Republican like me uh, to be at this point. Whereas, as Jerry Nadler rightly says, we are in a constitutional crisis and the Republican Party is anti-constitution. Well,
1: it seems it seems. Strange, particularly when it's the party of, of strict constructionists. Let me ask you a follow-up question before I get back to Ryan. You, of course, wrote a, a really important book called The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right, about your own journey um, away from the Republican Party and why you, why you made that move. Um, and, and, I, and I wonder, presumably not every Republican that you once knew has turned their back on you and shunned you. And that when you have off the record conversations with friends um who who have not made the move, um how do they justify it? I mean, is it just pure party discipline or you know do they have any conscience is you know do, do, does it trouble them that that we've really ended up in a constitutional crisis in order to protect a man who is clearly you know the least fit man ever to serve as president, and I—I I don't just mean that he's fat, um, but you know, the, uh, you know, the, I mean, a, a, a recent poll this week yep. of, of a political scientist rated him as the worst president in American history.
2: Right. Well, I don't think you would get many Republicans to acknowledge those basic realities. I think they're really in denial. They typically, what they typically do in justifying their sycophancy towards Trump is to say, oh, look, you know, he's been good on taxes or judges or on Israel. Everything else is just noise. And of course, their official position on the Mueller report is uh, no obstruction, no collusion, totally exonerated. That's not actually what the report says. As anybody who's actually read it knows, and as all these hundreds of former federal prosecutors have testified, but basically Republicans have their head in the sand, and they're pretending that everything is fine and that the real problem here is that it's the Democrats who are trying to undo the last election, which is the propaganda line that you hear from President Trump and Mitch McConnell and others. And of course, there are, you know, Republicans who are smart enough and and honest enough uh, to know that, that what Trump is doing is really bad. But at the end of the day, I think most of them are too scared uh, to give vent uh, to their inner doubts. And, you know, what are they scared of? If they're politicians, they're scared of losing office because they've seen what happened to people like Senator Jeff Flake or, or Congressman Mark Sanford losing their seats when when Trump turned against them, essentially. And if they're, you know, pundits or part of the right-wing media or think tanks, they're scared of losing their jobs because they know that the whole, you know, Republican establishment remains pretty solidly behind Behind Trump, and so it's it's really a, a study in in cowardice and opportunism. And I'm very glad not to be associated with this conservative establishment anymore.
1: Yeah, well, I, th- I think if one were to convene a meeting of Republicans of conscience, it could be held in the back seat of a Toyota Prius.
2: And right. Be you. It could be held in. It could be held in a phone booth, especially given there are no longer any phone booths, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, exa- exactly. You know, and you know, I have to say, Ryan, one of the things that is just stunning to me. Is the degree to which Trump's corruption is so obvious? This week we had another report from the New York Times about his massive losses that raises real questions about, you know, his ethics of doing business. Not to mention whether he's a good businessman. Uh, we had prior reports on massive systematic tax fraud. Uh, we've got a case in the Southern District of New York where one person pleaded guilty for something he did with Trump, and Trump <laughs> is named in the case uh, and would presumably you know, be uh, uh, found guilty of the felony, just as Michael Cohn was, who's now sleeping in a federal penitentiary. Uh, we have 800 former prosecutors who signed a letter this week that said, you know if if the case that Mueller made on obstruction were made against any other human being in the United states uh that you know they that 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 person would be found uh, or at least charged with multiple felonies and trump and by the way, this did have an impact on Trump, which you may want to analyze, which was today he said no collusion and he go, he went from no collusion to no obstruction, he went to no collusion uh essentially no. Obstruction, (laughs) which I which I was like, oh, essentially no obstruction, you know. So it's only like thirty percent obstruction, or this is, he's like blazing some new trails in the law here. Right, Right. only four out of the
0: ten incidents (laughs) equaling obstruction in the Miller Report. (laughs)
1: Right,
2: he's only partially pregnant.
1: Yeah, right. Right. There, there a few felonies.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He didn't get me on everything. (laughs) It
1: was like they weren't all really bad felonies, but but you know, and then there's like. In the Mueller report, there's 12 other cases that Mueller referred to somebody else that we don't even know what those cases are. There's 16 cases that we do know about. So that's what 28 cases. (laughs) Um, I mean, this guy, the only thing he's been productive at is producing new criminal cases. Right, right.
0: Everything he touches (laughs) turns to (laughs)
1: criminal. It's it's amazing. It's like a one man crime wave. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and And the Republican party's like, "Yeah, that we're gonna because of judges be- I mean, where are we?
0: yeah, um, <laughs> well, the other place that we are is it seems highly likely that the moment he is no longer president, he will be charged. He'll be charged for obstruction, he'll be charged in the Southern District of New York for campaign finance law violations for his directing the criminal conspiracy in that instance." And before then, I do think, you know, one other piece of it is the New York uh, state is probably going to go after him as well for all the overlapping crimes that are the financial crimes and the tax crimes that take place in that jurisdiction. So he is like the unindicted and the unimpeached <laughs> president, but he's highly impeachable and highly indictable. Um, it's a really bizarre situation that we're in.
1: Yeah. And, and and it seems, you know, the state of New York moved forward again this week on, on – both removing what some people have called the pardon loophole, which is to say if the president can be pardoned something federally, he could still be prosecuted on it in the state, and has also moved forward um, uh, with Senate passing both of these things, state Senate, uh, on providing uh, uh, income tax returns from the state to the Congress if the, this, the Congress wants them. So it, you know, it does seem like there are legal – entities in the United States that are outside the reach of this stunningly corrupt partisan hack attorney general. right? Um, and, and by the way, you know, I'm trying to be objective here. I think the nicest thing I can say about Barr is he's a stunningly corrupt partisan <laughs> hack attorney general. I mean, cause it's, this is just, a, a, you know, on the face of it, you know, he has done things, you know, that it's like these 800 prosecutors you know, coming out with this letter. Have you ever seen anything like that?
0: Never seen anything like it. And it's a bipartisan group, including people who served in former independent prosecutors, like uh, along with Ken Starr, are in that group of eight hundred plus. Uh, yeah, I noticed protesters. that they
1: said every administration since Eisenhower, right? And I was thinking, a hundred-year-old prosecutor. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But 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 it's every Republican administration is represented there.
0: Right. And I think this goes to something about Barr that has to be highlighted, which is, yes, he has a crazy outlier view of the president's powers as a matter of the Constitution. And even one that would make other uh, constitutional thinkers who think that there's such a thing as unitary executive blush, because his is so extreme. But he also is playing a very different game, and that game is a total public misrepresentation and public deception on the facts. He's acting as the president's defense lawyer, like he is He is the president's Roy Cohn. So it's that is, I think, partly what these 800-plus former federal prosecutors demonstrate, that in their view, it is a clear case of, as you said, multiple federal felonies could have been charged or would have been charged were he any other American citizen. And Barr says, oh, no, there's nothing there
1: yeah well, you know max in your column you you refer both the beginning and the end to um former education secretary Bill Bennett talking about at one point um the obligations to adhere to you know the guidelines of the constitution and then in this case no not so much um and and then Bennett makes this case in in, in, in referred to in your column in which he talks about. Um, You know, essentially this sort of distillation of the of this doctrine that Nixon tried to advance, which is if the president does it, it's not a crime. Uh, And it does, you know, I think to me illustrate precisely where the United States is, which is if the Republican position, if the Trump position. Um, which is unitary executive, the president does it, it's not a crime, the president is above the law, the president sets the rules, the president does not have to adhere to the Congress, Um, is allowed to prevail, Um, then it changes what the United States is. The president is above the rule of law. The whole reason that the American Revolution was fought, which was to establish a new form of government in which no one was above the rule of law, is lost. And that seems to me pretty high stakes, two hundred and forty years into the life of a country. Um, and yet we're sort of numbed into thinking this is just some political debate.
2: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, this is the greatest threat to democracy in my lifetime. And you know, I wasn't born yesterday. I'm almost fifty years old, so this is this is a pretty big deal. But you know unfortunately, you see just the the uh, unwillingness of Republicans. To recognize what is at stake. And they're just off the charts hypocrisy. As you noted, I quoted Bill Bennett, who was Mr. Republican moralist Art scold uh, attacking Democrats in 1998. Uh, for not willing to being willing to recognize Bill Clinton's misconduct, and that was a legitimate case. I mean, I think Democrats did turn a blind eye to, to to Bill Clinton's misconduct because he was one of theirs. But then, you know, what Bennett and the and the Republicans are doing now is ten times worse. I mean, after the Mueller report came out, actually, that's I don't want to uh, underestimate it. It's probably more like a million times worse, not ten times worse, uh, because the crimes that Uh, that Trump has committed are so much worse than anything that Bill Clinton did. And yet, you know, after the Mueller report came out, Bill Bennett, Mr. Arch Republican moralist, went on Fox News and said that even if Trump's aides had followed his orders to stop the Mueller investigation, that wouldn't be obstruction of justice either, because, quote, the executive power rests with the president. He can do what he wants. Okay, the notion that the president can do what he wants. I mean, that is a exactly what uh, what the uh, American founding fathers were rebelling against, this notion that uh, that the king is above the law. That is the very antithesis of our republic, which is based on the rule of law. And Republicans just don't care because for them it's all about protecting Trump. I mean, I suppose, uh, you know, the only thing you can say in defense of the Republicans, I mean, you can accuse them of wanting to undermine the basis of our country, and that is true. But in some ways, their hypocrisy, I suppose, in some ways, is kind of their saving grace because, as I point out in this article, as we know from experience, they don't really mean it. They're not actually in favor of unlimited executive power. It's only when a Republican is in office that they're in favor of unlimited executive power. And once a Democrat gets back into office, they will return to discovering the importance of congressional oversight.
1: Which, you know, in and of itself sounds um, just hypocritical. But, you know, beyond the fact that it undermines the principles of the Constitution, there's a consequence to this, which we've seen. You know, Barack Obama was not allowed to nominate his Supreme Court justices based on this theory, which predated Trump. Um, And they will block anything that a Democrat proposes, which expands government, even as when a Republican comes into power, they shrink the government. And that, of course, has a consequence. The people who need government are less fortunate. Uh, They need the assistance. The rich want government off their backs. The powerful corporations want government off their backs. So they are then able to take advantage of the power they have, the relative power they have within society. So it's not just partisan. What it does is it compounds a 50-year trend in the United States towards inequality, unequal (coughs) distribution of power. Now, as it happens, you know, we have here in the studio uh, a legal scholar. So I'd like to take it from the legal scholarship perspective and explore the notion that Barr and Bennett advance, which is if the president does it, you mm-hmm. know, it's not obstruction. It's not breaking the law. It seems to me not a legal scholar. The Lord did go to law school for one semester, but that's another story. But But not a legal scholar, but it does seem to me that U.S. v. Nixon said something completely different from that, and that's a Supreme Court precedent. But but maybe I'm missing something. Maybe the Constitution has been altered since the 70s. So the Constitution hasn't been altered at all. Um,
0: and it is true that in a certain sense they're trying to resurrect the position of the administration in Nixon uh, in the sense that they think of this as like – absolute executive privilege. And the Supreme Court rejected it. it said, no, it's qualified executive privilege. You have to balance it against the other political branch, which is to give Congress access to information that they need to perform their functions. That's one. The second is we were warned about this with Barr because Barr is also trying to resurrect his old views. Um, and that's why some people think, oh, he's just back in the government because he's actually seeing this as a beautiful opportunity in which he can make good on his views of this imperial presidency because he knows the White House is going to give him a blank check to do everything that he wants. And there's something to that, too. And we were warned about it in the nomination hearings. There was an expert witness uh, who said, uh, here's Barr's theory. And Barr's view, which is also announced announced in his 19-page audition memo for his job in the government, says that the president is alone the executive branch, and therefore anything he decides to do, close an investigation, he gets to do – And I think what's around the corner for us is that that same theory means that anything he wants to do, like open an investigation, he gets to do, and that the attorney general must bend as a subordinate. And that's the next turn of this, which is that the president can do with Barr what he couldn't do with Sessions, which is to say, let's investigate my political opponents.
1: And there is an explicit carve out in the doctrine of executive privilege that exists right now and was promulgated through cases like the one to which we referred, uh, for wrongdoing. In other words, you can't use executive privilege to cover up wrongdoing. Isn't that the case also?
0: Yeah, that's basically the case. And if there's one place in which it shall not hold, it's got to be that, that you can't block a um, court or a certain kind of proceeding, which would be a congressional proceeding, from being able to investigate the president for that wrongdoing.
1: So, Max, on the horizon, what we have is the Congress declaring um, uh, Barr and perhaps Mnuchin and uh, perhaps you know Don McGann and perhaps a whole bunch of other people in contempt. Uh, um, they could levy fines. Um, they could push this in, in a court. They're not going to get anywhere in the Department of Justice. Um, and this is just going to heat up. And probably it's not going to change the behavior a lot. They're going to every time they want to get a droplet of information, they're going to have to spend months and months in court fighting for it. Um, and so that's I, that's, stri-
2: that's exactly right. I mean, it, and it's kind of you know it's sort of like the uh, uh, the Russian strategy uh, in eighteen twelve uh, when Napoleon invaded Russia, and the and the Russians knew that they were too weak to defeat Napoleon in open battle but so what they did was they started falling back and making the French fight for every inch and and destroying the ground on which they retreated and eventually slowing him down so much that that the winter set in and I think you know the analogy here is that Trump is basically just trying to delay until November of of 2020 and just prevent any resolution of any of these cases in a way that would be harmful to him and then of course his hope is that he wins a second term and thereby validates his lawbreaking. And then he can say, look, you know, the people have spoken, they approve of my conduct. And, you know, Congress, you know, uh, take a long walk on a short pier. I think that's really, that's the Trump strategy here. Uh, and it's, it's ruthless. It's amoral. It's, it's anti-constitutional, but it could well be successful politically.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because, it you know, you describe it as the Russian strategy. You wrote a a uh, a a very good uh book on Vietnam it was the vietnam strategy too it's the strategy of insurgencies everywhere there's a debate this week on afghanistan in the united states it's clearly been the afghan strategy since you know you know i don't know alexander the great um uh, but certainly with the british and then with the russians um you know it's interesting because you have the imperial presidency uh, playing essentially insurgent tactics against the Constitution, where they either you know reverse it or they resist it long enough that it has the effect of reversing it.
2: but one right. and things- this is and this is what you know uh, to move away from the military analogy, I think to the to the closer uh, government analogy, this is what what dictators do when they or would be dictators do when they take power without having yet absolute power, and they slowly chip away at the rule of law and at the obstacles to their authority until they consolidate power in their own person. And I'm not saying that Trump is going to succeed in doing that. I don't think that he will, but that's clearly, you know, very similar to the strategy that he is following. Well, you know, at this point
1: in every episode of Deep State Radio, um, and Deep State Radio Live from the Comedy Center, um. I know our audience well enough. We've been doing this almost 200 episodes for, for almost two year, two years. And they don't really have well-rounded lives, obviously. They're at home <laughs> listening to a podcast. Um, they, you know, go to their refrigerator and they take out the box wine and they open the box. Because, you know, the Constitution's under siege and and it looks like – as the economist yeah, you might you
2: might need something stronger than wine at this point
1: well that, that's, it's true but as the as the as the as the, as the, the, the economist said this week as of right now the president is above the law
2: right um absolutely and, yeah i mean this is what i this is what i was saying last week we are screwed trump is winning he is getting away with his law breaking right but i
1: you know i just feel it's a it's it's a um public service that we need to provide here at Deep State Radio, to keep them from settling into alcoholism, uh, <laughs> and describe something the Democrats can do. And I'd like to begin, and, and maybe both of you can address this, and then we can get even a little more specific. How do we, you know, how do we approach Mueller? What else can be done by the by the Congress? But, but, but it seems to me well, the, the first thing is a, is a kind of an attitude adjustment. Mitch McConnell, who's as bad as it gets. Um, And is in many respects, worse here, Um, Mitch McConnell, through uh, the Merrick Garland case and in other circumstances, has essentially said, I'm playing to win. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what tradition is. I don't care about ethics. I don't care about anything. And so long as I win, the ends justify the means. And the Democrats go, oh, my God he doesn't care and he's being unethical and the ends justify the means and Mitch McConnell's <laughs> like yeah you you don't get it i don't care that you say that i don't care that there's protest and and this is this the problem is that the the democrats still think that the republicans can be shamed um or that you know quoting the constitution or what's right or 800 prosecutors makes a shred of difference for McConnell, who's got a an agenda, or for Trump, who literally sees this as an existential battle. Because if Trump, you know, gets kicked out of office, as as you said earlier, he's gonna go to jail. He's gonna be in court. He's gonna lose a lot of money. His kids are gonna face all of these things. So he sees this as existential. The Democrats just don't seem to be playing the same game here. You know, the Democrats are playing wiffle ball and the Republicans are playing hardball.
0: Right. I think, uh, I think it was this week that Brian Butler had said, it's like the Democrats had brought a star, a uh, um, harshly worded letter to a knife fight. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so I, I do think that they are just playing by a whole different set of rules. It also reminds me of, like Paul Manafort. I think Paul Manafort thinks the rest of the world are just dummies by playing by the rule
1: book. It's just, You go by the rule book. That's what Donald Trump thinks. Look at the way he treats the tax. He said it was sport. You know, rich guys look at the law as the beginning point of a negotiation. They say, well, I'm going to get a lot of lawyers and I'm going to delay and I'm going to win. And I might not win, but then I'm going to have a settlement. And it's just a negotiation. It's just what do I have to pay in order to, you know, Jamie Dimon and, and, you know, uh, the folks at his bank – screwed over millions of people and then they got a 20 billion dollar fine and everybody's like well holy shit that's a 20 billion dollar fine but if you look at how much money they were making that's a cost to doing business yeah absolutely they're just paying a fee yeah 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 so 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 the question is what do democrats with spine who are going to play hardball have as options right now so there's the So there's some, you know, some unorthodox
0: options like defunding people's salaries. They do have the power of the purse. Uh, They do have um, must pass legislation coming up in the national security domain, the uh, National Defense Authorization Act. They, um, Appropriations Act, they do have that. So there's that kind of basket. The other is they have the nuclear option, obviously, which is uh, impeachment. And at the very least, the big question is will they formally open an impeachment inquiry not saying that they're going to do an impeachment but just the inquiry itself and once they do that they do set themselves up for a much stronger position with the courts but i think they also have to explain to the american public why they're doing that and right now we have an american public where very few people have read the Mueller report or any single page of the Mueller report so i think there's a bunch of public education that has to go around for that to happen i think that's why it's a very important for the Mueller hearing to take place in the House, um, and mainly as a public education, not even necessarily getting Mueller to say anything but what's in the four corners of his report, because I think it's so damning. Uh, So I think that's part of it. Um, And, uh, you know, it's very hard to know what to do. If we had the Senate, or if the Democrats had the Senate, then other things would be possible in terms of nominations and uh, approval of people who have been nominated, but we don't have that.
1: Well, that's that's right. You know, uh, Max, there's a lot of You know, uh, thoughtful people who go, oh, well, we can't impeach because the Senate will never convict them for the reasons that we just talked about earlier. Um, uh, I, I happen to come out on the other side. I think one impeaches because it's the right thing to do. There's a constitutional obligation to impeach. But I also come out for a different reason, and that is politics in America has changed. Donald Trump demonstrated how politics in America has changed. He used the media differently than anybody else. He was running for president when he was doing the Apprentice, and nobody even knew he was running for president because he was gaining name recognition. He used social media in different ways, and frankly, by even launching an impeachment inquiry, you set up, um, a, you know, ten-hour a day um, television show right. where you talk about the crimes of the president. And you know, my theory on this is. Live by reality TV, die by reality TV. Hmm. And that that becomes, you know, a blunt instrument where every single day something new can come out and you talk about financial ties, which we haven't done yet, money laundering, which we haven't done yet. Uh, You go a little further, you know, in the Mueller report, uh, he talks about perhaps he could have made the case on collusion if people had provided – uh, uh, more fulsome testimony if they hadn't destroyed evidence and and so on and so forth. So you go in those cases um, and you start exploring some of these other things, these other ongoing cases, the Southern District cases, the other cases, because all of them play into the impeachment narrative, right? Because impeachment is multiple articles. It's everything that he's done wrong. Um, so to me, that seems like hardball, but it also seems like common sense. And it also seems like fulfilling a constitutional – responsibility. First question, Max, is do you agree? And secondly, what would you do to play hardball against these guys?
2: Well, I I mean, I agree with the basic advice you're you're offering, David, which is to hold hearings, try to educate the American public about the scale of Trump's illegality. Because as you note, very few people have read the Mueller report. In fact, one poll showed only 3% of the country had read it and probably half of those were lying. So uh, I think it is imperative to to get that information out there, which is, of course, and but you know, Trump realizes that. That's why he is stonewalling Congress because he does not want to create the fodder for a new reality TV show on Donald Trump's misconduct airing every single day. And you know, he is reportedly very scared of of a Mueller appearance because Mueller is incredible is is very credible. He is somebody who, if he you know testifies and speaks his mind will do grave damage uh, to the president. I think that is exactly what Democrats need to do. And then at the end of that process, they you, they basically need to look at at the public opinion polls and decide, does it make sense to go forward with impeachment? Because right now... The problem is, and and, I mean, I sympathize with all the reasons for impeachment, and on the merits, yes, Trump needs to be impeached, Barr needs to be impeached, Mnuchin needs to be impeached. I mean, these guys are a bunch of crooks who are assaulting the Constitution. They need to be impeached. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi, and I have great respect for Speaker Pelosi, I mean, she has to deal, work in the realm of practical politics, not just what is right or wrong, but also what is practical, and from her standpoint— you know, she does not want to proceed with impeachment right now, when a majority of the country is opposed to it, and when doing so could potentially backfire, costing the Democrats uh, seats in purple districts that they picked up last year, and potentially even helping Trump to mobilize his base and win re-election. That would be the ultimate nightmare. So, you know, before we get to that point, I think it is imperative to have those hearings to try to educate the public, and that's why. You know, the, the the showdown over subpoenas is such a high stakes uh, battle and and one where Trump basically wins if he can just delay and and push this off uh, to the point where it doesn't matter anymore uh, before the next election.
1: Well, I think, you know, there's a there's a core thing here. The Mueller report is not going to persuade those American people who are unpersuaded right now with two to three percent of the American people having said that they've read it. Um uh, old-school congressional hearings aren't going to persuade them. Uh, sorry, websites are not going to persuade them. Books are not going to persuade them. Even podcasts, with the possible exception of our podcasts, are not going to persuade them. What they need is...
2: Maybe a few podcasts 24-7, though, David. Did you think about that?
1: It's an interesting idea, and and my partner, you know, Chris Cottonware and this whole thing is in the room, and I think, you know, we'll consider going to 24-7 YouTube channel... Just sort of, I'll be brushing my teeth, going, "Damn Trump," um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, But 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 reality TV wins, right? Everybody knows what the Kardashians are doing, right? And I think if you don't put the show on TV, it doesn't exist in the United States anymore. We can lament it, but it's true. And so I think that's why it is imperative to hold the hearings, to hold them on TV, and the opening chapter the star is Mueller. And the question is, Ryan, what do you ask him that moves the ball down the field? So um, also just to
0: say the second star is going to be Don McGahn, uh, the White House counsel, who will be the John Dean of our time, potentially. And the story writes itself. So it's almost impossible to uh, evade the connection with how much he can undo this presidency given all he needs to do is repeat for the American people what he told Mueller.
1: And that if he doesn't, then he is open to perjury charges, right? Yes. If if he contradicts them, right?
0: That's right. Um, So I think for Mueller, in some sense, it's a low-hanging fruit, that all we really need him to do is describe what is in that report, uh, because it is so damning. The other part that I think Mueller can do, if the questions are put to him, and there's going to be a number of questions he won't answer, so that's the problem. Because one question we'd, one would want to know is, um, if you did have the authority to indict a sitting president, what would you have decided? So that's one question for him. But I think another way of getting at that que- same question and also exposing the cover-up uh, by A.G. Barr, Attorney General Barr, is to say to him, you know, did the Attorney General tell you? That you had that authority, or is that something that he just happens to have come up, come up with since you submitted the report? And I think that's a big question. Um, and then, and then the other one would be if just to ask him a question that he can answer, which is, if you were told by the attorney general that you had the authority to make an a, a what what Mueller called a federal criminal accusation against the sitting president, and you thought that the evidence did establish that he had committed a crime, would you have? Just to ask him that question, I think it exposes the cover-up. I don't think it exposes exactly what's in that Mueller report.
1: Right. Although I think, by the way, and you you mentioned to me, you guys are worth working on this issue of what should Mueller be asked. One of the critical things is that you need the right follow-up questions. Right. Because he could very well respond to what you just said, saying, I'm not going to deal in hypotheticals. And then at that point, you have to sort of break it down and say, do you believe anybody is above – the? no one is above the law in the United States. Uh, If no one is above the law and the president breaks the law, then does it fall? And the OLC says we can't indict him. Do you believe it then falls to the Congress to make this decision? If you believe it falls to the Congress to make this decision, you know know what I'm saying? In other words, he's got to be given questions that he can answer and that he cannot finesse. Um, And so that requires follow-up. Max, if you were sitting with Mueller, what would you ask him?
2: well i mean you know essentially to you know lay out the findings of his report and explain what it means when he says that he could not exonerate donald trump because that seems to me the key section um and you know as as ryan has suggested there there're going to be questions that you know sadly he's not going to answer but even just to go through the list and to and to show why he could not exonerate trump and why uh, so much of the president's conduct uh, met the test for criminal obstruction of justice, and beyond that, just the troubling ties uh, between the Trump campaign and the Russians and their intermediaries, ties which you know do not necessarily rise to the level of criminal conspiracy, as, as 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 Mueller outlined. And he can go over why they didn't rise to that level, which is a very high level of of evidence and proof. But why, nevertheless, these these. These may not be, and in fact, were not uh, appropriate things for a candidate for the presidency to be doing.
1: We only have a couple more minutes, but I want to ask a couple more follow-up questions. One of the things, Ryan, that strikes me about the way we're responding to all of this, and even this conversation has followed this, is that we, even well-intentioned people, bought into the Trump framing of collusion as the issue. Mm-hmm. And have subsequently bought into the Trump bar framing that no collusion was found in the Mueller report, uh, except as you guys have detailed on your site. plenty of collusion was found. collusion is not a crime. The question is whether particular crimes were committed, and he then splits hairs on some of those. He goes, "Well, the Russians gave them something of value that might make a value, uh, create a, a problem under federal election law but we don't know how to value it, so we're not going to pursue that. Or had we had more time, which I think, by the way, is a very critical question because why didn't they have more time? Had we had more resources, had people cooperated, had they not destroyed evidence, we might have been able to make this case. And so I think a question arises, uh, were there constraints placed on them? What were the constraints that were placed on them? Where did all the financial information go? Why are we not reading about tax returns here or money laundering or exposure to leverage and so forth? Did those end up in some of those other cases? Did those, were those avenues you were precluded from crossing? Because it was a red line from the president. And then there's a final component of all of this. And this is a statement, but it's also a question, which is, do you agree with it? And that is, Something that you you detailed in an article that you, I, I think, published. If I get this right, I, I want a free subscription to Just Security. Like April 29th, in which you talked about the counterintelligence findings of the Mueller investigation, which Adam Schiff has reemphasized again this week. Because after all, at the end of the day, the thing that we are forgetting is that... The intelligence services of an enemy decided to influence our elections were embraced in that by a political campaign that they chose to try to support. Um, that They provided support to that campaign. That campaign provided support back to them, election data and so yep, forth. Yep. That campaign denied they were doing it repeatedly. Then that campaign defended the Russians. Then that campaign provided them with policy goodies, Easter right. eggs, right. that they would never have gotten before from the GOP platform uh, and the Ukraine stance to Mike Flynn's conversations with Kislyak to Trump's subservient behavior to Putin and his regular, again, repeated assertions that he believes Putin ahead of the intelligence community and ahead of law enforcement, that somehow the crime here was U.S. law enforcement and not the GRU and not Russian intelligence and not our enemy trying to influence us. And so we've, you know, because obstruction seems like the low-hanging fruit, we're focusing on that. But shouldn't hearings focus on the fact that Yes, collusion took place, and yes, if we dug deeper, there are crimes there, and by the way, this is actually a counter-intel investigation, and this is about national security, and let's, you know, I mean, the Republicans are against the Constitution. They also seem to be in bed with the Russians and unconcerned about U.S. national security.
0: Yeah, so I think that's the, um, and like you said, it hasn't been reflected in our conversation until this point, that's... Probably the most important issue, because it really is about a threat to our national security. So, everything that you said, I, you know, i just say a few more words about it. Are that's right that the Mueller report is only saying that they could not establish, according to beyond a reasonable doubt, that a criminal conspiracy took place. They then even say in the very introduction that the reason they couldn't establish it in part, or they say that the several Trump campaign associates associates lying to them materially impaired the investigation. And then plus all these other things like destroying evidence, uh, people saying they're cooperating, then they're not cooperating, uh, people taking the fifth when they shouldn't really be taking the fifth in certain circumstances, things like that. Just a whole conglomeration of reasons that they couldn't get to the final answer. And for example, you know one of the things they can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt is that when George Papadopoulos was told two things by the Russians, which is one, that they had Hillary Clinton's emails in the thousands, so thousands of emails that were derogatory to Hillary Clinton, and two, that they could – released them anonymously, so they actually previewed their plan to, put up up, to Papadopoulos. What's the one thing that um, the Mueller team could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Papadopoulos told the campaign that? And it's, in, it's, in, it's almost inconceivable that he did not. He was updating them all the time, and he told foreign governments
1: <laughs> that well, information. And, so, and Don and, and Manafort had a meeting about dirt, true. and Roger Stone was doing this thing, and Manafort was giving them feedback, and so on and so forth. So, yeah.
0: And another part of it is that what's, you know, a revelation in the Mueller report is that uh, Donald Trump himself was, re- was ordering his Trump campaign associates, Michael Flynn and others, to get the emails. In other words, to hack or get the emails. And then they were in conversation with, as far as they knew, uh, Russian hackers. So the idea that Papadopoulos wouldn't tell the campaign is nutty. But yes, they couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt because they couldn't document it. So they didn't have the criminal case. But then the other basket of questions is the national security issue, and that's what Adam Schiff is focused on, which is even if we don't have it beyond a reasonable doubt, the question is about collusion. The question of collusion might also be even if they didn't do it knowingly or deliberately in a way, but they were unwitting assets for the Russian government. That's what we need to know. Even if they didn't enter into a formal agreement that you'd need for conspiracy, but they were doing it because they mutually understood each other's side and what benefit they gave, they gave to yeah. one another that's a serious national security threat from the person who's in the White House currently, and that he is a supplicant to Putin, as it seems to be demonstrated with Helsinki and other matters. And I did raise that in the piece. I I myself forget the exact date of the piece, but then that's right. This week, Greg Sargent has an interview with Adam Schiff. So Greg Sargent uh, nicely refers to my piece and says, here are the questions that are just not in the Mueller report. They're not documenting it. The report is not a counterintelligence analysis. It's just a criminal prosecution or not. Prosecution question that's asked there and that Adam Schiff confirms that he has yet to be briefed by our intelligence community and the FBI about what came out of the Mueller report, Mueller investigation. And Adam Schiff's speculation in that interview is that the intelligence community would like to tell um, the leadership of the
1: Congress what they
0: know, but it's Barr and the White House that are
1: blocking them. Right. Um I'd love to go on with this and on and on and on and I hope that you guys will come back to do that more. I would add that by the way that
2: there'll be a lot of time when you're on twenty-four <laughs> yes. seven. Know, and
1: since that's your idea, I'd like you to be on for at least twelve yeah. hours of that with me. But um <laughs> but 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 Adam Schiff, by the way, in his subpoena to Barr notes and I, I think uh cleverly that there is a national security exception to this issue about grand jury testimony and, and, and other things that they withheld, which is that they are entitled to that information. And, in fact, there's a carve out. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, he's been very canny about this. Uh, I think the other thing when we talk about Republicans playing hardball is that their game is for time. And so if the Democrats are going to play hardball, they have to fight the game against time. They have to have urgency. They have to move things along. The the longer it takes, the more the Republicans win. The less time it takes, the more this stuff comes out, the better it is for the Democrats. But clearly we've got Mueller testimony coming up. We've got McGahn testimony. Again, testimony undoubtedly coming up. There may be Don Jr. testimony coming up since the Senate seems to be seeking that. Uh, there, there there are likely to be more hearings coming out of this thing. Uh, and as I say, I hope that both you, Max, and, and you, Ryan, will come back and that we can continue this conversation because I think both of you have been great. And for those of you who are listening, follow Max's columns in the Washington Post Um They come frequently. They are always insightful and very, very important reading in this time. Go to Just Security, which um, uh, Ryan has been running and has done a great job. And by the way, there's a lot of really good insights into other security issues and how they intersect with the law. And I think that's uh, an an important place to go. And of course, you want more from us. I can't promise 24 hours a day, but, but we've got other podcasts and we've got other discussions about this, whether it's... The regular Deep State Radio or whether it's uh, the new Unredacted from DSR podcast uh, with Philippe Ryanus and Molly Jungfast and Emily Brandwin or Washington for Beautiful People um, or some of the things that we write on our site. You go to the DSRnetwork.com and uh, look that up. Uh, and, and, and if you do it slowly, that may be the equivalent of 24 hours a day. Or if you read <laughs> Max's stuff, then you go to Just Security. Then you go to the DSR Network. There you are. That's your whole day, you know, plan out the, the drinking of the box wine throughout that period. And I think you're going to end up in a great place. And then by <laughs> all means, where it says membership on the DSR network site, click on that, become a member, spend a few bucks, don't be such a cheapskate, help support this kind of programming. Uh, we'll get these guys back. And maybe the next time they're on the air, um, we'll have refreshments. And if we have refreshments, maybe Max will even come into the studio. Right? You maybe would do that, right,
2: Max, if there was food? Um, absolutely. I was I was thinking of liquid refreshments. Liquid sure. refreshments,
1: right. That was how we got you to the last thing at the election yeah, night. There, exactly. was of, there was a lot just of— a just got to
2: get me liquored up and get me talking. Yeah, that's—okay,
1: that's where we're going with this. It's going to be called, um, you know, drunk politics with, you know, you know, like drunk history, and we'll be on the air yeah. um, and just drinking it. Very appropriate. Pontif- yeah. yeah, no, it really is. Um, All right. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Ryan. Thank Thank you, you, all of you out there. And we'll see you again soon on Deep State Radio and Deep State Radio Live at the Comedy Cellar. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright.